The Sign Out Podcast has partnered with Outdoor by Four to bring you this conversation. Welcome to the Sign Out Podcast. Here we interview individuals who are pursuing their passion and who want to share that story. The worst thing it did was it took my memory from birth to that accident and it never came back. I will side with absolute truth. If I could do that, I can function in the world. From that point, I threw myself into the study of truth. All right, everybody, welcome to the next episode of the Sign Out Podcast. As always, I'm really excited about the guest today. We have Rob Spencer, currently the director of Project Hill to Land. But as we dig into Rob's story, we'll see that he's done a lot of different things over his time and has some really interesting stories to go through and talk about how he got to where he is today. Um, so first off, Rob, just thanks for joining us here on the Sign Out Podcast. I appreciate you taking some time today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So this is um, Dave Jansen, a mutual friend of ours, uh, kind of set this up, at least introduced us. And so I was glad for Dave to find a guest like you on the podcast. And as we started out, you know, I like to dig into kind of some people's story and how they got involved to where they are today. And I think, and I have a little bit of background on you from doing some research, but you definitely have an interesting story out there. But first off, if we just talk about uh, your interest in the outdoors, I'm always curious when I start these conversations, is that something that you've always had from whenever you were young? Were you, was your family an outdoors family? Were you interested then, or was this a, something that came later in life? My family was basically a crime family in the ghetto of, uh, of Southern California, in this town, small town in Southern California. Uh, my dad did like to fish and stuff like that, but my story actually picks up later on in life uh, where I don't really have that that upbringing kind of memory like most people have. Interesting. So I know that you had a major event in your life that kind of changed your direction. You had a car wreck that really had a big impact on you. Was that yeah. kind of a catalyst or talk about that on how that, because I just, I listened to a small story and I could tell that that was a big deal. And the, the interview I listened to, you're Powerful words came out of that just from listening to you talk about it. So I'd be curious to hear more about if that was really that point to where your life did change in a big way. So basically, it, I was in my early mid-20s, and uh, me and my wife were camping down at uh, a local spot here in Southern California called San Onofre. Great surf spot, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, we were camping with a group, and I early in the morning, I got up to go surf, but I was meeting a friend, so I drove up to uh, his exit which is just down the street from the campground. And, uh, and I was waiting for him and there's a diabetic guy who, and I know all of this story after the fact, right. Just from the, the police and that kind of thing. But so this diabetic guy was in long beach, California, and he lived in Oceanside and he, and he was going to drive home. Right. And that's about probably an hour drive out, maybe a little more than that. Um, and he wasn't feeling well. Right. So, but he thought he could make it. So right around where I was, he goes into a diabetic coma and veers up the off-ramp of the freeway without hitting anything except for me at the top of the off-ramp. The guy T-bones me. He's unconscious. T-bones me 65 miles an hour. I was in my Jeep at the time and uh, and just destroys me, right? So um, Jeep goes in the air, comes down spinning, but it's on its side. And my head was in between the roll bar and the street. So it tore my ear off. It broke my jaw up to a bunch of places. And uh, 
And actually, I was paralyzed on the right side of my body for several weeks. It turns out that it was just the swelling on my neck that was compressing all the nerves. So luckily, my movement came back. But the worst thing it did was it took my memory from birth to that accident. And it never came back. So when I say took my memory, I mean everything. No family, no school, no friends, no life experience, no job. You were married at this point, just based on the story you're talking about. I was married, and I've managed to stay married to this day for that woman. Yeah, we were married for probably a year or two when that happened. So I wake up in the hospital, and we're assessing all the damage and that kind of thing. And the doctors, you know, quickly we realize that the memory thing is gone, right? And uh, what they try to do at the times, they try to jumpstart my memory, so to speak, with... uh, bringing in people, old friends and books with photos in it and stories and, you know, all the stuff from childhood, that kind of thing. And uh, nothing took. But um, but as as little as they know about brain injuries today, they know even less back then. So that right. they couldn't really come up with anything to do from there except for feeding me more of the same. Right. So. Uh, it didn't take long before I had tons of stories in my head, tons of memories from photos and that kind of thing. I just wasn't emotionally attached to anything. I, it, it was like you were telling me the story about you, not about me, right? Because I don't even recognize it as that. But I did have all the information. So there's a point in the hospital, and this is weeks and weeks and weeks in, that um, I just got tired of being that guinea pig. And I checked myself out, said I remembered everything and checked myself out. And I went home to heal the rest of my, my jaw was actually so destroyed that it was weeks still from, even from then, it was weeks before it was unwired. It was just wired shut. So I didn't really have to talk to anybody. I didn't have to, you know, I couldn't get back into life. So it was just a good time for me to split and try to figure this nonsense out on my own. That's a, that's still, I mean, that's a huge mountain to climb at that point, though, even getting back out. You know, that story is, uh, you almost can't even grasp it because everything that you are trying to think to relate to it is attached to your past somehow. It's attached to a memory or an experience that you had. So it's literally a starting point. It's literally being a grown man and, and having zero life experience in your head. So how do you take that next step? I mean, I know you get out of the hospital, but... I mean, you're basically, what were you doing before that, like for your career or what, what were you kind of doing? And then how do you take that next step? Like, okay, I've got to heal and then I've got to start something new. So, you know, that, that is actually uh, too much planning to give me credit for. Like I wasn't even there. I'm just trying to right. make world. Right. Right. So I'm not even thinking on what's next, what I'm just like, okay, get me out of here and let me figure out life kind of thing. Right. So I'm at home. And what I was doing for a job at the time was I was, uh, I was an auditor in the L.A. Harbor for like uh, the vehicles that would come from in from overseas before they went out to the dealerships. So making sure that everything was right. right. And, that, and there's no way I could go back to it. I just couldn't get it. I, I tried for three weeks. And I couldn't. But anyways, before even I went and tried that, I'm, I'm at my house and I'm healing up. And uh, there's a there is actually a light switch moment where. 
that really defined the way that I tackled life from that point forward. Um, having no answers, I was ready for anything, right? But but I, what was happening is I was laying on my couch and I was watching TV, and uh, I went to I wanted to change the channel. So back in the '90s, everybody had coffee tables, you know. I don't know, like I don't have one now in my house. I don't know if you do, but we all had tables back in the day, and the remote was sitting on it, and uh, it was just out of reach, though. So you know, I took my pillow from by my head and I threw it out onto the remote and I slid it across the table so I could pick it up, right? So as I went to do that, my pillow knocked over my drink and it spilled all over the floor. I had to get up, go to the kitchen, get the stuff to clean it. Now I'm on the floor cleaning this drink up and like a light switch, it hit me that trying to take the easy way out of this just cost me 10 times the amount of effort, right? So from that moment, I vowed I will never live life like that again. I will do it right or I won't do it. And uh, and the second thing I learned is, is more metaphoric, but nothing ever falls to the ceiling. And what I mean by that is that when I knocked my drink over, it fell to the floor. And if I knock my drink over a thousand times after that, it's always going to fall to the floor. And if I even knock something off my table today, it's falling to the floor because the universal truth that comes with gravity or density or weight pulls that to the ground 100% of the time. I can bank on that. It will never fall to the sky, correct? Right. So what that means is that that would go into the category of universal truths, right? So there are universal truths out there that may or may not line up with people's reality. So uh, the universal law of displacement, if I, if you have a cup of water on your desk and I put my fist in it, what's that water going to do? It's going to go out. If, if I come over to your house and I crash through your back fence and I drive into your swimming pool, what is that water going to do? Right. It's going to displace. What if I take you to the ocean shore and we toss a penny into the ocean, what's going to happen to that water? It's going to move slightly, but. To some degree, because the universal law of displacement is absolute. Right. So now I have this knowledge of that there are absolute truths out there. So the the way that I approached my life was this, and and trust me, this isn't just black and white. I just came up with this. This is this is weeks and months of chaos before I could make any sense of anything. Right. But we're referring to the actual resolve here. So, but there's absolute truth that I know that I can bank on. So now having a scrambled brain may tell me something different than absolute truth. My reality may not line up with actuality in some cases. And that's true for everybody. But in my case, in this specific moment, I knew that if I were disciplined enough to study universal truth and to stay disciplined on the fact that when it's telling me something different than my mind, I will side with absolute truth, right? That's if I could do that, I can function in the world. That's a pretty big revelation at that point, though. I mean, because your mind literally is scrambled at that moment. Yeah. I mean, you were dealing with major brain injury, but yet it's this knowledge is seeping through and you're able to recognize, I can't, I have to go with that because I know it's concrete. I believe that, uh, that I believe in God right. and I believe that God took care of me in that moment. So that's where I was, uh, that's where 
that belief comes from. So like, it's very different than most people's, and I won't get too religious on you here, but it's very different than a lot of experiences. When I woke up knowing nothing, I knew God existed. It was very matter of factish to me. I even knew to doubt in a God when I humanized myself, if that makes sense. Uh, it totally makes sense to me. I, 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 I know where you're, where you're coming from with that. Um, and it's probably what's interesting about that is much prior to the accident, that wasn't necessarily your reality like that. I'm not, not saying you didn't believe in God, but like this, you changed for this wreck. Sure. Whether I believe in God or not before, it didn't matter. Right. Because I'm at this moment in my life, this crossroad in my life where I know nothing. Right. Right. So you, you're coming out of this fog and this wreck and your body, I mean, a miracle at that. You're coming out of a miracle. Nobody survives that wreck most times. There's just no way. Yeah. Especially in a Jeep being T-boned. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. like you're just sitting there getting hit by the car. Whole medical team was shocked that I even lived. Right. I, I, yeah, I, that's why I think it's, you know, hundred times it happened. You're the one guy that, that got to live out of that wreck. So how do you, you, at some point you start, I mean, you make a comeback, right? I mean, you, from that point forward, I threw myself into the study of truth. Okay. Right now, just like there's physical uh, truth, like displacement and gravity and, and leverage, there's also mental and spiritual truth. For example, I want you to think about the last time you got a gift from your favorite person on the world. How good did that feel? Felt good, right? Right. Now I want you to think about the last time you gave a gift to that favorite person, which felt better. Oh, giving a gift always. So we know that it's universally true that giving is better than taking. Yep. Therefore, I can live my life giving and know that I'm going to have a better outcome than I would if I to selfishly be surrounded by a, a, a lifestyle of taking or collecting right. or that kind of thing but you still have to get yourself to a point where you can be that person right so from the accident uh the the physical stuff wore off and now i'm getting back to life i tried to go back to my job and i just couldn't do it um so before the accident i did study a little bit in a system of martial arts called Kempo, hawaiian Kempo, and that's a system of martial arts like back in the 80s that was there was no MMA back then, right? right? It was, they were all stylistically broken down to different styles. And the Kempo was like the street fighting, quote unquote, version of a martial art, right? So, but there was still the curriculum and all that other kind of stuff. And uh, so I didn't lose my muscle memory. So maybe I couldn't do the curriculum from that system of martial arts, but I was coordinated and I could fight. And I had a good, uh, I had good balance and good displacement and good athleticism. So again, the the study continues. I I really master leverage in my movement, and I become this this I'll say expert in body movement, in mechanics, okay. applying the universal truths of like leverage and displacement and balance and all that other kind of stuff. And it transitioned into fighting really, really well. So I self-taught and opened my own martial arts school for the first time in like 96 or something like that. We were talking earlier, I'm a big mixed martial arts fan. And doing that in 1996 is way early. Way early. Way I mean, early. that's like tip of the spear. Like you're just starting, like you're one of the first people like, hey, I'm going to try this. 
So I had some fights back then. And here in California, you could fight on Indian reservations or you could fight over the border down in Mexico. Right. And it was called no holds barred fighting. Right. It wasn't even called MMA yet. Right. Um, UFC was early and they, but even then they were styles masked up against styles back in the early era of that. Right. Um, and so that's kind of where I came from. What I, what I noticed when I went back with my new way of thinking is that as I tried to relearn curriculum, like, you know, your combination stuff and your forms and all that, I find value in the form side of it in the sense of mental discipline. But as far as the practical self-defense techniques that everybody quote unquote teaches, I found that they just didn't add up. They don't work in other words, because real life has so many components in it. So you can, Use a choreographed movement to, as a way of training your body to move a certain way, but you couldn't use that movement as an actual self-defense technique, if that makes sense. So right away, from that point forward, I never had any curriculum. It was all, it was all lesson skill-based when it comes to all that. And I had an 18-plus career run at owning several gyms with five, 600 students you know, at the height of it all. And uh, it was it was a lot of fun, and it was all pretty much self taught stuff, you know. That's really amazing. I mean, it's amazing that physically you can just do that, based on your accident that you had, um, to have the discipline to figure it out, self teach, and then create a successful business. I mean, running any business for that amount of time is very difficult and takes a lot to yep. do that. So check yeah. this out. So. This is the key to all life success, all life success, free yourself from the domestication process of birth, right? So what I mean by that is think about this from birth, you and every other parent, including your parents have been domesticating you to be normal, to fit in, show you the guidelines of what you can't do in life and what you can do, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So. I had no domestication process. There's it, there's nothing I can't do because I didn't know I couldn't do it. And you attribute that to your memory loss from that wreck? Like you yeah. like starting over? I am taking my lemons and making my lemonade out of it, right? right. So I have been freed. I, I have been freed from being normal. Normality sucks. Normality is addiction and divorce and negative net worth and all these other habitual patterns of life that we can't get out of our own way of. So I didn't have that. I am I am not domesticated. So I was free to creatively express the things that I've learned through my study of truth. So what led to, because at some point you're done with the MMA stuff, right? What led to that change? Um, Obviously, you enjoyed it, 18 years, owning multiple gyms and training kids, adults, giving back to community from that standpoint. But what led to a change in that? So I still love it. I still train. Um, but my body, you know, you get old. You get old. So, I do know that. So my body wasn't holding up like it was before, right? Right. So um, I just thought, you know what? This would be a good time to uh, to for all intents and purposes, I was just going to retire to sell off the schools and retire. So in my early forties, that's what I did. And that 
that retirement lasted about two weeks before I got real bored, right? So, so one day I walk out to my back end and it, for people who are listening to this, understand that, that I'm, I'm painting this, this picture with very broad strokes. There's a lot of intricacies and details of what happened, right? But I'm giving you the gist of it. Well, let me ask you, yeah, let me ask you this question during that time while you're, because ultimately we're going to get more into the, your outdoor adventures that you've done um, all the way up to where you are today. But were you and your wife camping, going outdoors and doing that stuff as you had this MMA career? I surfed. Almost every day there are waves I surfed. We lived right by the beach. My school is in a, kind of a beach town. And that was my big thing. And um, before actually my accident, I was triple A rated beach volleyball player. So, really? Yeah, yeah. That means I'm good enough to go and play like day one to qualify for the AVP tour but not good enough to beat anybody. So <laughs> I get spanked by all the good guys, you know, but so I was, I was kind of athletic already. So with that being said, I, I, I came and what me and my wife were into, we were into, we were into camping, but we were into like, like the version of camping that wasn't like hardcore, right? It was like going to a campground with your friends and hanging out by the fire pit and, you know, all the fun stuff that comes along, camping and then surfing the next morning and taking a hike, you know, whatever, and then coming back, you know? So that's the kind of outdoor stuff we're, we were into. Um, but owning your own business, oh, you know what? I want to get back to that real quick. But owning your own business, uh, especially one that's open six days a week, doesn't give you a whole lot of time to go camping, right? So... What I've learned throughout my journey is that when you apply the same few factors of truth to anything you do, you will get the same answer every time. So there will never be a time that you put two plus two to equal anything but four in life. So there's the same kind of way of living. So whether I'm owning a business or whether I'm doing the blog thing for the outdoors, or whether I'm running a, a, a kind of a task force that finds juvenile runaways and, and traffic kids, it's the same approach to everything that I've done, right? It's the same few steps that I make uh, forward to succeed at it. And fortunately, they're universal truth, right? They're universal truths that will always equal the same answer. So you strip away the preconcepted idea of what you're doing and you focus on how you're doing it and you'll have success. I want to, I want to take a little side turn because you just mentioned something that I wasn't expecting. Um, and you and I just met today. And so you, yeah. my, my podcast, uh, part of what we do with the other side, which is the brand side is we give 10% of our proceeds to a local charity here in Houston that is getting women off the street for sex trafficking. And you just mentioned something about a task force with juvenile trafficking. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, I don't want to get too deep into it, but uh, basically for a few years, I got recruited to develop a hand-to-hand a, a -hand system of protection for these agents that did this. And in order for me to do that, I had to go into the field and kind of experience what they're experiencing right. to develop up the system around that so it applies to that specifically and uh and back then it was mostly like it was very therapeutic the juvenile um 
crisis world was very was definitely more therapeutic back then. It wasn't hardcore trafficked and all that other stuff, you know. Um, so it was a very it was a much softer person that was involved at that level, you know, with family crisis stuff. Yeah. So, anyways, I get in there and, and I just I fit like a glove in the industry, or the industry fits me like a glove, and I, for for a few reasons. One, because I have this heart for lost kids, uh, mainly because. Uh, nobody knows the the definition of the furthest extreme of being lost in somebody who wakes up in their early 20s not belonging to anything right right and and nobody knows what it feels like to be alone more than a guy who wakes up with no family no friends no anything right so i have these dark i've had the, i have this the byproduct of a brain injury is is depression and darkness in many many ways and you have to govern that but I have those in my experience so I can bring this apathy to the industry that most people couldn't get. Right. So that's one side. The other side of it that made me so well is I believe that when I lost one component of who I was, all of my other senses were heightened around it. I was very um, hypersensitive to chaos. I, the world moves in slow motion to me. That's why, why I was a decent fighter and all that other stuff too. You know, uh, it's, it's calm when I'm in a fight. Yeah. So anyways, um, so I get in the industry and I, I just, I love it. So I decided to join the team and then quickly I, I started running the team after that. So then for several years, I ran this team that were mostly government um, contracts or connected people or super wealthy people. And they would pay to, we, there's several facets to it. There's a juvenile transport component that, so once we would find the kids, they would go to an, uh, one of our teams and that team would transport them to a location that would then kind of either, it's either a therapeutic kind of thing or it, basically a reconditioning of the mind right. at any, however you want to say it. Um, so there are a few, few levels of this, of this business, so to speak. Um, I, so I ran the whole team. But my specialty was actually uh, extraction and uh, actually locating an extraction, right? Yeah. My, my sweet spot. And then, so I spent some years doing that. But I got to a point when I realized that, and this was in 2010, I realized that if I can go in to the, to the, the child that has been sexually abused, forced into prostitution, strung out on drugs and all this stuff. I can get them back and they will never have a good life. They will have the best life they can have, but they will never have a good life. The damage is too deep. They will have good of a life as they can have, right? That makes sense? Yeah, it's tough but to hear that too. It's tough to hear, but look what, look what somebody did to these poor right. kids, right? right? So get it. Yep. A divorce will ruin a kid for life let alone gang raped and strung out on drugs right and then sold right anyways so but then i thought of an idea and that's when i retired from that and started my first charity in 2011 and it was called the academy care project and that 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 thing is renamed and still working in the la foster care system today wow. but um that charity became we take i believe that here's my theory my theory was this so we, we want to find those kids for sure that have been trafficked. Um, but if we can put our focus on the front end of this and find them when they're runaways 
and, and help the family work through their issues and help the kids work through their issues and, and get all past this kind of phase in life, we actually can, re- these kids can re- have healthy, normal kind of lives without this heavy baggage that has happened to them. So we take the focus off the front end and we put it on the, or we take the focus off the back end, we put it on the front end and that's the runaway side of it. And we can now repair the family unit at a much more efficient um, result. Yeah. So from 2011 to 2020, that's, that was our charity. And uh, we did a lot, we worked with a lot of families and everything from find a, find a girl that was turned out and, and sold on Craigslist to, to helping a girl that was forced into prostitution. Right all the way into finding kids that are just at the beginning stages of that kind of lifestyle and, and catching it and redirecting it before it gets down the rabbit hole so deep that damage is done that will never be repaired. Right. Right. That's a great, it's a great way to try to go take that and get it on the front end. Um, yeah. It's just, it's something that's so tough and it's in, that's in all of our communities at different levels. Um, right. Living in Houston, it's a very, Sex trafficking, um, kids all the way to, to adults is a very big deal here in Houston. It's, a, it's a, every state, every community has it. Right. Um, so, but the thing is that think, think of this. So think of now, what can the average parent do about sex trafficking at best, maybe financially supported like the, the, the fines and the, and the church, at best. But now what happens if, an expert in the industry comes along and I can walk the parents through the process of finding the runaway and, and educating them about the lifestyle and, and all of this other stuff in a safe way to where not everybody gets an education. And we know that now that it's, look, it's rarely a bad kid. It's always a kid that the parents had something to do with the demise of, right? So finding a kid and helping that kid is great. But if the family unit doesn't also get that help, the kid goes back to the same environment. And the next time it's just one step further down the rabbit hole. Right. So we're able to, through education uh, and, and a very proactive approach to, to showing these parents what's actually going on we're able to come in and kind of bring the whole family unit into it now where a dad maybe could support financially a group that he knows nothing about and with an industry that he knows nothing about him can now be a part of something we now as a community can get involved and when your community gets involved you can actually make differences true that is so true so you i mean you've been doing a lot i mean that all in itself was a very, I mean, that's a big venture to take on, to start a nonprofit and do that. You had a couple other things, you, um, a couple of websites, but I want to get to Venture the Wild is, I think, a blog that you've kept going for a while and you post on. If you look at the Venture the Wild site there, it's up, but 95% of my content isn't on there anymore. Right. I just kept a few things up because I don't want somebody to grab the name and then- right portray it like it was what it was but what's so interesting because one just the title and i think there's a lot here is project heal the land yeah and it it, from what i can tell this can go in a couple of directions because i've heard you talk about another program 
and my wife and I were just talking about this before I started about how nature can heal you as a person. And then the work you're doing as true conservationist as well to truly heal the land. Right. It's work in both directions. So let's dig into like, how did this come about and what is your mission there? And I can see we're always on this theme of when you ask me about the gift, do you want the gift? Do you want to, you want to give the gift? I like gifts. Right. 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 And and this ties into that. And so talk about, talk about this current one. So there's one thing in all of my study of of these truths and all of the things that I've done, there's one thing that I forgot that I left out that I stopped short on learning. And that was how to take care of myself. I spent my entire life in conflict, whether it be fighting or whether it be in the pits of disgust in the worst possible humans ever when it comes to what they do to these kids. Mm -hmm. And, and it dehumanized me. I was already dehumanized. I was already a shell, right? And that, that much ugly and that much conflict, uh, there wasn't much left of me. And I got to a point where um, I realized that the things that I, re- that I was doing was hurting the closest people to me the most, right? I may be out on the road, you know, doing a 46-hour straight case uh, on something and, and have a great result from that. But what's my family doing at home? And what am I doing when I get back from that? Am I checked out? Am I right? So all of those components were gone. And I literally was just a shell of a human. I I can very, very robotic. I can look in your eye. And if you were, I can hug you or I could put you down. It almost doesn't matter, so to speak, you know, not literally, but, but so I had to find my humanity. And I believe that we cannot go into creation without coming to terms with the creator at some level. And it might just be an appreciation, you know, it might be something small or it might be something great. So through my own solitude and finding peace in nature, in creation, it humanized me. Right. So, so fall. So now I have this, this passion, right. Um, uh, with nature, And I wanted to, and I got to a point where I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to spend my life in conflict or am I going to spend the rest of my life in peace, right? And I chose peace. So that's where my passion for nature kind of kicked off. But the websites and all that started is one, honestly, it was very simple. I wrapped up the martial arts school stuff and and the, the running the task force thing was very much during my martial arts school ownership. So, you know, I had employees and head instructors and all that. So I didn't have to be there every day. So anyway, so as I wrap that, that entire chapter of life up, I opened my garage after about two weeks of doing nothing and I saw it full of stuff. And I thought, this is not the way I want to live. This stuff is, I don't even know what's in this garage. This is a waste. It's a waste of everything. So I empty the garage out and I build it into a studio. And with the studio, my goal was to start some podcasting and, and do a blog and all this other thing. Uh, with And I didn't even know how to do it. You know, I came, I, I started writing because I didn't know how to write. 
I started writing because I didn't know where a comma went in a sentence. I started writing because I didn't know the difference between T-O and T-O-O. I started writing because everything I wrote, as long as it was, was one big, long sentence. And I figured, okay, in this chapter of life, I'm going to educate myself a little bit. So I thought, I'll do it with this website. I covered, I covered MMA, I covered consumer tech, and I covered uh, the outdoors, Jeep and all that kind of stuff. So I, the, the website started doing very good, especially the uh, MMA section, which, I, you know, obviously that's, I spent all these years in that. And then the nature section, I had to pick one or the other. So I chose the Jeep and the outdoor stuff to stick with. And in the beginning, I was just writing stories and fun stuff. And that kind of, if, if I found something cool, I'd write about it and I'd take some photos and I'd do some podcasting and that kind of thing. But as being a one man show, I just enjoyed the writing process more. I, I, I could go out to the mountains, set up a hammock and write all day and be in nature and, and just be in that solitude. And it was so good for my mental health that uh, I would love it. So one thing led to the next and the blog kind of got its legs. And at that time, there weren't even influencers in like the overland off-road crowd. It was a couple of us, you know, a couple of like Yeti and Yolo. Have you ever heard of those guys? Yeah. Okay. So those guys were around and it was me and it was maybe a couple other guys. And, but that was it. There was nobody repping brands and like, like the Instagram uh, influencers that there are today. Right. Um, uh, so it gave me the opportunity to work with cool brands about stuff in that traditional writing sense and the blogging and the reviewing and that kind of stuff. Uh, the website got great numbers. Um, so the proof is in the pudding, right? So like I can reach out to a brand, but because I had these great numbers, every brand would be usually more than willing to work with me. And what that turned into, it turned into a, a knowledge more, I guess I had the knowledge because I created it through the martial arts world, but it came, it turned into a tangibility, a, a tangible, I'll put it like this, it turned into a tangible way of showing a company how to turn their company into a lifestyle brand through engagement and through content creation. So I was able to kind of pivot and I always kept the blog running because that's where the audience was. But it allowed me to go into these smaller companies and help them create an environment for themselves through content creation and through learning how to engage with people that would benefit their outdoor brand and, and just turn this, this industry into a community, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that's kind of where like that all kind of started with the Venture of the Wild stuff. Uh, and I had a great like nine, 10 year run at that. Again, I was running my other charity all the, time, the whole time also. And, uh, and we got to a point where I wanted to shift. And mainly because, my, again, you kind of age out of this stuff, right? These, you, can't, you can't be spending 18 hours a day awake anymore at 50. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I do know. So, uh, so I needed to make a shift. But my, my main focus has always been to give to people. And it's always been to help more than I hurt. To, to build up more than I knocked down, you know, those kind of principles in life. I've always done that with anything I've done. And, uh, and my motivating factors, probably because I didn't have that domestication factor, wasn't necessarily financially driven or wasn't uh, driven in fame and that kind of stuff. So uh, my reward was really the day in and day out work that I got to do. 
So we're at the 2020 and we get this idea. Me and my wife are talking and I'm saying, hey, you know what? I, I really want to pivot to a, an outdoor charity to finish out. Like I got one more good run in me. What's it going to be? And then, I'm, you know, then it's it. So right. I just do an outdoor charity called Project Heal the Land. And the, the main goal of Project Heal the Land, if you think back to what I first said was you cannot come to terms with the cre- with the creator. Are you ha- I'll say put this right better. You have to come to terms with the creator by going into creation at some level, right? At some degree. So my my whole focus is to share with people what I got out of nature. What I got when I the healing components that I received that I know my life is better because of what I've got there. This is for everybody. So I want to share that with people. And the way I share that with people is through our service projects. So we work a lot with U.S. Forestry, um, especially in our local area. We collaborate with other nonprofits. And uh, and we really try to bring to life a community of taking care of me because it takes care of us. Absolutely. So let me ask you a question about that. You know, it's interesting. You live in California. I mean, I'm not living in California, but I know it's great weather. Yeah. Lots of great opportunity for outdoor activities. But I know you can speak to the fact that there's a lot of people that have never even touched nature. They've lived in the they live in the concrete their whole life. And we're talking about, you know, being wild and free. They've never got to be wild and free and experience that. Are you able to even get to those people and really show them what, what one nature of, can do? One of my favorite stories is, uh, is I have a friend, her name is Hilda and she grew up in gangs and in the ghetto and that kind of thing. And uh, she's never been to the mountains. She's a 40-year-old woman that's never been to the mountain. So I'm like, Hilda, we have to go. So me and my wife and Hilda and my dog jump in, jump in the Jeeps. And we head up to the top of Big Bear. And uh, we head out on a trail. And we stop at a peak that overlooks the, the lake. And we get out of the car and it's crisp, clean air. And the sky is a different color blue when you're that high than it is when you're in the city. And there's fresh snow on the ground that nobody's ever touched. And she stood there and all she could do was cry because it was such an overwhelming feeling that she had seeing this beautiful place and comparing it to the man-made jungle that we've created for ourselves that we live in every day. She was in awe. She was in nothing but appreciation. She learned in that moment what freedom really was. She learned in that moment what what creation really was. And our role in the ecosystem, as we belong working with it, not watching it from the outside. And to me, that those kind of moments are the best. Yeah, that's and you know, when you think about what you're trying to do, is and I think people in this whether we call it industry community or what, what, how you want to describe it is we've got to make sure that we're preserving this for the future. Yeah. So, and that means that we've got to do the work, um, the education, some of it's just working, like you said, going to first forest service tree and just working with them and providing yeah. support because they don't have all the resources, but it's so they important. Don't have to, to, yeah, they don't. And so anything like with what you're doing to be able to, 
step in, bridge a gap, and then provide that opportunity to that next person um, to be able to experience what Hilda experienced and have that yep. life-changing moment is so important. And just being outside, um, always, I got to visit Yellowstone. It was back in 2000. I went on a family trip with my in-laws and my wife, and we went to Yellowstone. And I'll tell people, I was like, if you go there, you will see colors that you've never <laughs> seen in your life. <laughs> yep, totally. I mean, you will watch and you'll see this bowling, scalding water running down the side of the road and it'll produce these and you'll walk out and look at just all these different things. And and you had no idea this even existed until you right. walked on that wooden plank out onto these lands and, you know, walking on these sidewalks and stuff. And I just it's so important for people to see that. And it does take an experience like what. Hilda had because if you've never seen it and never got to do it, you wouldn't, you just don't have any ideas. Totally, totally. So for me, there there are a couple things. One, um, I had spent uh, several times uh, working with, with people that have PTSD on a lighter scale mm-hmm. and taking them through. I call it a nature therapy, but I'm not a therapist, so I can't probably really call it that. But just to kind of walk them through the steps that I walked to find the answers that they're looking for, to understand that, you know what, sometimes bad things happen, too bad, so sad. And what are we going to do regardless of that and how to cope when you need to cope and how to bring yourself out of depression when you're feeling depressed and how to remember I said you have to be disciplined enough to align yourself with actuality even when your reality isn't is telling you something different yeah so so the whole way and nature has always been a little bit of a part of that but only now have I really committed my entire life to that process? Have I really committed my entire life to kind of plugging people into nature to, to through the service projects that we do that, that will actually help them um, really find that, that, that peace. And it, it goes back to, I mean, to what you mentioned earlier, and I'm going back to the same point because I think you're, story is the story of giving and, and as you even admitted earlier there's times that you were giving but it maybe you weren't taking care of yourself and so you've always got to take care of yourself but when we start talking about giving and if you now have this organization where people can come out there and they get to do two things they get to experience nature and that yeah. all of the beauty at the same time while they're helping nature and they're giving their time and their energy and their effort and their resources to even a greater cause. hundred percent. And let's say they're not, the, they, they don't even give a, a second thought to this whole giving component being better than receipt, you know, giving right. a receipt and all that other stuff. You cannot be in creation without coming to terms at some level with the creator. You cannot be out there giving without, without, tapping into the universal truth that giving makes you feel better than receiving. You will feel it. You will experience it whether you want to or not, because it's there and it's absolute. hundred percent, a hundred percent agree. So what we do now is we focus a lot on our public lands Mm -hmm. and for whatever reason, OHV guys like four by four guys and wheelers and stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but 
they're the guys that are designated for trail cleanups, trash cleanups, and that kind of thing. But so I think they get the short end of the stick because planting a tree, collecting seeds, taking care of uh, like a section that is has endangered planting, it's so rewarding, right? But for some reason, I don't know why, but they always they get overlooked for those kind of things. But they all want every every guy wheeler that I know of wants to give back to nature. Every wheeler that I know of, that none of them are ever like, oh, that's stupid. I never want to plant a stupid tree. What would you do that for, right? Nobody does that. They just haven't had the opportunity. So right. I bring that opportunity to specifically the OHV community, anybody really, but specifically the OHV community, and get them past the point of trash cleanups and really get involved in restoration of nature. Yeah, and that's, cool. that, it's a, that's even that proactive movement where, Cleaning up trash is really reactive to what's just out there. We see it, we pick it up, fill up our truck, our Jeep with all the trash and we go, as opposed to going to this place, seeing the bare ground, planting the seed or collecting the seeds, planting the, the tree. That's very proactive in taking that step forward. It's very That's important. what I call understanding our role in the ecosystem, right? So we do need to do those trash cleanups, right? Because it will just get overran, but understanding our role in the ecosystem is it's a bigger calling yes but also if you remember that i earlier i said i i believe in participating and building up not knocking down and and taking or giving more than i take and leaving things better than i found and that kind of thing so i've also taken this approach with the uh with the charity which i found a lot of charities are always trying to stop these bad behaviors they're always trying to you know tell people don't do this don't do that don't do that and that often comes from that domestication process that i told you about that way of educating comes from that but if you're if you're trying to stop bad behavior you'll never make a dent because simply critical mass there's too many people right i can't yeah. tell enough people not to leave the trash on the ground but what I can do is I can educate people to do good. I can educate people on nature. I can educate people that, so we're on a trail and you pull off to the side of the road and you just drive your car up on these little four inch, what you think are weeds sticking out of the ground. You know, that four inch plant, it takes like a year to collect the seed and put that back in the ground. And you just rode over it in the car tire, right? So that could be the start of a major tree or whatever. I mean, right. and most people don't, it's not that they don't care. It's that they don't know. Exactly. So we need to educate. By educating in the good, by increasing our pool of people that are focused on the good, it shrinks the bad by default. That's a great way to think about that. I really like that. It's a positive, healthy way of hitting critical mass. Yeah, I really like that. Rob, I, I really appreciate you jumping on this call today. I think this is, I think your story is so interesting. Um, nobody can relate to come, you know, I say nobody, very few people who've lost their complete memory as a young adult and come back from that. But I think your battle back, you know, finding a career that really suited what you were trying to do when we think about being free, but then kind of bringing that all back around to this charity and being proactive and educating people and giving people opportunities where they've never had them before. Um, trying to find more Hildas that need to be brought out into, you know, the land. Those are all great things. And I, I just appreciate all the work you do. I think that's great. Well, 
what's the best way that folks can really help you support you, especially those that aren't local in California or that can just keep track with what's going on in your world? So the, the thing is this, everything costs money, right? Yep. That's always the hurdle. And the Forest Service, they don't have the resources. So they rely on charities to bring that to them mm-hmm. and to get it done. Uh, so obviously, financially, we any support is always great. And you could donate on the website at projectheeltheland.org. And if you want to get involved on a deeper level, just go on to Instagram and find me. It's ADV, like adventure, A-D-V-R-O-B, Adventure Rob on Instagram. And you can shoot me a DM and I will help plug you in. Or if you're a guy who has a, a, a greater passion to do something bigger and you're involved in a different state, like I have several people like that, they're involved in different state and they want us to come alongside and collaborate with them. We're, we, we're all into that as well. That is awesome, man. I appreciate your time today. Um, looking forward to signed up for the email today for on project till the land i'm looking forward to following this adventure and uh seeing how things go so i appreciate your time awesome thank you for having me make sure you check out projectheelthelandorg that's where you can learn what rob and his team are doing to educate restore and conserve our public lands Special thanks to four-wheel pop-up campers, purveyors of vehicle-based adventure, for their generous support of the Sign Out podcast. Learn more about four-wheel pop-up campers and their variety of quality base camp adventure products by visiting 4wh.com. That's F-O-U-R-W-H.com. Thanks for listening to the Sign Out podcast. And make sure you check out our website at signoutco.com. We have original design hats and t-shirts and stickers, so check those out. Also, if you could please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that really helps us out. And the intro and outro music was actually made by myself, Caleb J. Murphy. If you want to hear more, check out calebjmurphy.com. Again, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Sign Out Podcast is proudly brought to you by Outdoor by Four Magazine, a preeminent publication for responsible vehicle-based adventure travel, including overlanding, with family-friendly content that resonates with a broad audience of adventurers, whether in a 4x4 vehicle, on two wheels, in a canoe or kayak, or traveling by foot. Outdoor by Four Magazine's focus is on visual storytelling that appeals to the broadest range of outdoors enthusiasts while providing expert advice in the field as well as dynamic photography and stories that inspire. You can pick up a copy of Outdoor by 4 magazine by visiting your local bookstore or by visiting the Outdoor by 4 website at www.outdoorx4.com.